Epic fail. Here we go again. Can't do it without talking about Jonah. But we're going to start out talking about Daryl Smith of Ephrata, Washington. Daryl Smith had been arrested on kidnapping charges and some uh, burglary charges. And when it was time for him to face the judge and they were transporting him from the jail to the courthouse, he saw a moment where he thought he could get free. And so he did wrestle himself free from one of the sheriff's deputies. Off he took through downtown Ephrata, Washington, wearing an orange jumpsuit with his, with his handcuffs on and everything. And uh, trying to hide from the police who were in hot pursuit at this point, he got into a large kind of barn or an outbuilding, and he found this big dump truck there in that barn. Sure enough, the keys were in the ignition, so off he drives. The police are still on his tail, and he made it about 20 miles down this highway, going about 60 miles an hour, when suddenly, without decreasing his speed at all, he veered off into this field. You can imagine how rough that was. It was not even at all. And one of the police deputies described it like a scene from Dukes of Hazard, as he said, this guy, literally all four wheels of this dump truck, or however many wheels it has, were getting off airborne several times as this thing was just rolling through this field. The police are right behind him, you know. And, and finally, he crests the top of a hill, goes back the other side toward Lake Moses on the backside. The police get to the top of the hill. Well, he's parked the dump truck at the bottom of the hill and now he's standing there in his jumpsuit with his handcuffs on and Daryl Smith begins to go into the lake and then he begins to swim. By the time the police get to the bottom of the hill, this has turned from a, a, a mission to apprehend the fugitive to a, a rescue mission. It's time to be lifeguard because he is, he is several, um, quite a ways off into the lake and he is floundering. He's just kind of treading water and kind of bobbing above the water. And finally, Daryl Smith yells, help, I'm drowning. Well, the deputies take off their, their belts and, and head into the water to save this guy. And they do. They save him. When they get back to shore, Daryl Smith looks at one of the deputies and he says, man, thank you so much. I would have died if you hadn't saved me. And it reminded me this week, as I read the story about Daryl Smith, it reminded me of another failed waterborne escape attempt. And that is the story of Jonah. Um, it doesn't go well, and you don't even need to try to swim with handcuffs on for, for it not to go well. Um, in Jonah's case, you know the story, you've heard the story. He is escaping from God and escaping from this mission that God has given him to go and preach to the Ninevites. Nineveh, I, I don't know much about Nineveh, I don't know much about Tarshish, which is where he ended up trying to escape to, but I can tell you this, geographically nowadays, Nineveh is in Iraq, Tarshish is in Spain. So he's told to go here, and instead he goes this other direction. Now we know the story, at least we think we know the story, right? I mean, I'll confess to you this morning, I thought I knew the story for a long time. Um, I thought there were two main characters in the story. You had Jonah, you had the whale, you had some Ninevites over here. But as I kind of study the story more and get more into to what's going on into the text, I see, well, there's no whale to start with. It's a great fish is what the Bible says. So we don't know what species or even if it was an existing species of any kind of fish or mammal that actually gobbled him up there. And I, I perceive now the main character in the story is not Jonah. 
I mean, the main character in the story is God. Guess who has the very first words in the book of Jonah? God. Guess who has the very last words in the book of Jonah? It's God. Guess who's acting the entire time? Now, now Jonah is, is important, I suppose, because he becomes um, the vehicle, if you will, through which we see God working, but the story is about God. And I guess it wouldn't have worked with 66 books in the Bible to call this one the book of God, because then you'd end up, I guess, with 66 books of God, so we just call it Jonah to make it easy on ourselves. But really, this is a story about God. The protagonist is God. Um, Jonah is not Anakin Skywalker, all right? Jonah in the story is Jar Jar Binks, all right? He is, he's the, the comic sidekick. I can't stand Jar Jar, by the way. I have no idea how he made it into the Star Wars story, but that's another, that's another deal, and certainly not for this morning. But there he is. He is, he is the comic relief. He's the sidekick. God is the hero of this story. And as we look at this story and we see God's character on display as the story ends, hopefully we also see a little bit of ourselves in this character named Jonah. And if we're real humble, we begin to see some of our struggle and some of our weakness and failure mirrored in the heart of this prophet. You see, Jonah wasn't interested in spending any time at all in Nineveh. Why? Because Jonah was a bigot. Jonah hated Ninevites. He didn't need to get to know them. He didn't need to friend them on his Facebook. He didn't need any knowledge about them personally to know he hated all Ninevites. They were the wealthy country that came in and crushed Israel. They were the mansion-dwelling, hummer-driving, rich folks who came in, put their heel on Israel's neck, and used their superpower army to impose their will on the nation that was the chosen people of God. Jonah hated them, couldn't stand them. The idea that he would go and preach some sort of message that could theoretically could possibly cause one or two of them to repent and be saved. Yet more reasons not to go there. Because if I'm Jonah, I don't want them to be saved. All right? So what we know about the story and what you've heard about the story is Jonah is told to go to Nineveh. He goes the other way. In fact, he goes to what is now modern-day Tel Aviv. He goes to the city of Joppa, and he goes to Joppa, and he, he puts his life savings into buying this, this, this ticket to travel to Tarshish. So, so there he is, headed the opposite, opposite direction, trying to do what? Trying to escape from God. So Jonah chapter 1, verse 3, um, says this about, about his escape. It says, Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. Think about that, to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. And I'll be honest with you here. I, I, I'm trying to wrestle with what, what was he thinking? You know, because I think, I mean, I've always grown up thinking God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. Fancy words to say he can do anything he wants. I mean, he's everywhere at the same time, and he can see in all places all things that are going on. That's what I always grew up with. So, so did he really think he could escape God? Well, 
I mean, maybe he did. Maybe he didn't have a, a good theology about God's omnipresence. Maybe he thought that Yahweh was to some extent or another, at least a little bit like the regional deities that other pagans worship, where, you know, a certain God would be over like a city or over a tribe. Maybe he thought if he left the Jerusalem area code, you know, he would eventually, God's power would weaken or he would get out of God's zone of influence or something. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what he was thinking. Maybe he was thinking this. Maybe he understood God perfectly and knew, and knew all about God is everywhere and I can't literally get away from God. But maybe he thought, if I delay a little bit, you know, it's pretty clear here that the Lord's patience is running really thin with Nineveh. It's really clear here that God is about to judge the city. So perhaps if I can just delay things for a week or 10 days, his patience runs out. He turns Nineveh into a sheet of glass. There's just a big mushroom cloud. There's debris, and it's over. And maybe that's what he thought. I'm not exactly sure what he was thinking here, to be honest. But as he travels, as he tries to escape God, um, it doesn't work real well, does it? It doesn't work real well. It kind of reminds me of um, when my kids were really small, one of the things that, that we enjoyed doing, all of us, was playing hide-and-seek. And, and it was so funny. It was so just, it was all I could do to quit from laughing when they were really little. And they were so bad at hiding. I mean, Claudia, when she was like three, she had this idea that, that she could just kind of go right in the middle of the living room and kind of ball her little three-year-old body up and close her eyes real tight. And if her eyes were closed really tight, she like was invisible, you know? And of course, I'd kind of play into that too and stuff. And, and, but it was so funny what they thought. And then their hiding places. I mean, you'd inevitably see someone's little bottom sticking out from under a dining room table or legs and arms from underneath the bed. And I mean, they were awful at hiding. And I wonder, is God, you know, here, this, this all-powerful, all-seeing maker of heaven and earth, is he watching this entire escape attempt and just kind of like, I can't believe this guy. I mean, no matter how far he goes, let's say he made it all the way to Tarshish, which, which to Jonah must have seemed like the end of the world. It's kind of like God is just standing there in his living room watching Jonah move two or three feet. I mean, it's like, I mean, this is the God of galaxies and, and the universe. I mean, he's not going to be fooled by these attempts to hide from him. He sees the whole thing. And what I'm reminded here, we're going to talk about some different kind of like classrooms of faith in this story, some places where, where we, we learn something about God and we learn something about ourselves. Inside back cover of your bulletin, here is the first classroom. And here's what I think we learn as Jonah is on the water trying to escape from God. It's that I can't escape from God's presence. I can't escape from God's presence. I love Psalm 139. It's one of my favorite songs that David wrote. But I suspect Jonah wasn't humming along to Psalm 139 here. Because the lyrics of Psalm 139, at least some of them in verses 7 to 8, David writes this, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, some translations put, and perhaps it's better with this story, to the depths, you're there. 
you're there. I, I can't get away. I can't go to China. I can't go to Scotland. I can't go to Brazil and think I'm going to get away from you. You are there. You're already there. I cannot escape from you. Jonah's escape was kind of like one of those... You guys, you guys have seen these before, where you're watching your favorite TV show or whatever, and all of a sudden they break in, local news channel, and they're showing some car driving down the highway, and, and it's somebody trying to escape from the police, you know, it's some fugitive, and it's so funny, it really is. It's almost like kids, my, my three-year-old's trying to hide from me and hide and go seek. There they are, driving. there's four or five police cars behind them, maybe ten police cars, maybe a couple of police cars in front of them, and the police don't seem in any hurry at all. I mean, because number one, they know exactly where the fugitive is, and so does the entire viewing audience of Channel 8. Um, second, they know that at some point, the car is going to stop. I mean, either the guy's going to get tired, or he's going to have an accident, or the thing's just going to run out of gas. And so here is Jonah trying to escape from God, and God is watching the whole thing, knowing exactly where he is, knowing exactly where he's headed, not fooled at all. Now, people, you and I today, we generally don't try to get on a ship or get on a plane and think we can escape from God, but we do have other vessels. We do have other, other means of transportation to transport us away from God, or at least we think we do. People have this habit of trying to distance themselves from God. Nowadays, instead of catching a ship to Tarshish, maybe it's alcohol or drugs. Maybe it is throwing myself in my career and never having to think about God. Maybe it is sex. Maybe it is whatever, you name it. We have a lot of different kind of placeholders, a lot of dif different substitutes that we can use to try to fill up that God spot in our life. And maybe we won't think about God. Maybe he will become distant from us. But the truth is, I can never escape from his presence. And I think the more we try that, you feel him nudging you. You hear him whispering, I'm here. And I think even the atheist the, uh, that, that, that refuses to believe, that, believe, that has been so thoroughly convinced by all of the arguments they've read that I still think they feel the nudge of God. They hear the whisper of God. We cannot escape from His presence. The funny thing is, Jesus comes along, and in the New Testament, Jesus says, you know what a, a lot of people are trying to use to escape from God? How about religion? How about religion? He talks to, in Mark chapter 7, he talks to the group of the most religious people on the entire planet known as the Pharisees. And that's basically what he says to them. He quotes from this Old Testament prophet named Isaiah. And in Mark 7, verses 6 to 7, Jesus says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far. Their hearts are distant. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. So whether it's religion, whether it's sex, whether it's drugs, whether it's your career, whether it's what, a relationship, whatever it is, there are a lot of ways that we try to escape from God and they end up being about as effective as a three-year-old thinking her daddy can't see her because she, she's squeezing her eyes shut. Right? I mean, God is all-seeing, and when it comes to running from God, you can run, but you can't hide. And He is passionately in love with you, and He will not quit. His love will not run out of steam. 
He keeps coming after you because he loves you. Now, so as Jonah's ship sails westward, we have this violent storm. I mean, it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. And these sailors, these pagan sailors, who probably were not the most pious people on the planet, not exactly the Pharisees here, they begin to find God, right? I mean, they are praying. They are fervent. They are praying their hearts out to this whole pantheon of pagan deities, but things are just getting worse. Finally, they realize, wait, we have one person here who probably has a God we haven't prayed to. It's that Hebrew guy below decks. So the captain goes down there, finds Jonah, who is sleeping, wakes him up and says, hey, buddy, you better start praying to your God because we are all about to end up on the bottom of the ocean. And Jonah says, well, confession time. I'm the reason this is happening. In actuality, the, the, the whole purpose of my trip is to escape from my God, and my God is the God of heaven and earth. And so, I'm your problem. You are going to need to throw me overboard. Again, the pagans prove themselves to be more pious than him. They've been the ones praying. Jonah hasn't prayed at all up to this point in the story. They don't want to throw him overboard. But Jonah eventually convinces them that is the only way. He's thrown overboard. The sea is calm. And then the next part in the story is one that some people find very difficult to swallow. And maybe you're here this morning. Yeah. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you are... Tr you, you just can't believe it. Come on. I mean, seriously. The fish swallowing Jonah. He is in there for like three days and he's fine. And then the fish... I mean, come on. I, I, would, I would say, first of all, it's, it's okay for you to have doubts. It's okay for you to have questions. This is a safe place for you to be. But I would say also... Um, yeah, it's hard to believe. And I've heard people try to, I mean, do a lot of work and trying to explain, well, there is this species of fish that, or this kind of whale. That, I don't buy it. I don't think there is a species of fish on the planet that you can like hang out like it's your best western for three days and just kind of hang out there. I don't think there is. I think the point of this story is this is miraculous. <laughs> This is miraculous. It's just as miraculous as, as a God who sees everywhere. It's just as miraculous as someday a Messiah who will be crucified, killed, his corpse will be put in a grave three days later to be resurrected. It's just as miraculous as water being turned into wine, as the sick being healed. It is, it's a really big miracle is what it is. And in fact, Scripture actually hints at this for us or tells us this in Jonah 1 verse 17 where the text tells us the Lord provided a great fish. And depending on what translation you're using this morning, um, it might say the Lord prepared a great fish, um, like the Lord commissioned. This is a, this is a special tailor-made fish just for Jonah, and the Bible is telling us that. Don't, don't try to go find, you know, some fish somewhere on the planet that, that you can live in for three days. Good luck with that. And then what we know is the purpose of this fish, this fish has been commissioned to safely deliver Jonah to the beach nearest Nineveh. Well, this is kind of Jonah's second classroom of faith. Um, 
for the first time in a long time, Jonah prays. <laughs> I mean, what else is he going to do? He's in the stomach of a fish. And so he prays, and this is kind of how his prayer goes. We have more of it, but this is kind of how it goes in Jonah 3, verse 7. When my life, Lord, was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. So this is the second classroom of of faith. In the fish, and this for you may be an ICU, this for you may be unemployment, this for you may be a struggle or a conflict in a relationship, In the fish, I discover God hears my prayers. I discover that God hears my prayer. He listens when his people cry out. Jonah's prayer is answered, all right? He prays, his prayer is answered. God doesn't send him a jet ski. God doesn't send him like a Venetian gondola to safely take him to shore. God, well, you know how it goes. (laughs) He is transported to the shore via a protein shake. He is, it's whale vomit, folks. There's no way to sugarcoat this. In the Hebrew, it's, it's whale vomit. He takes a ride on the Technicolor train and arrives on the beach. And I wouldn't say Jonah has a change of heart because he's going to go to Nineveh now. Change of heart is not the right way to put it. Jonah is now thoroughly convinced, if I don't go to Nineveh, God will kill me. And that becomes about the only thing capable of motivating Jonah in this story. So off he goes to Nineveh, and we have this other classroom of faith. We learn in the story at this point, God wants to work through us. God wants to work through people. God wanted to work through Jonah. I mean, whether it's Moses or Mary, whether it's Jonah or John the Baptist, God prefers to work through people, regular old people like us. Paul tells his church in Corinth, that was a pretty messed up group, but he tells his church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, he says, we are God's fellow workers, right? I kind of tend to think of my co-workers being like Bob Chisholm and John Scott Davis, but God is in the cubicle with me, right? I mean, God is my co-worker. It, it is unbelievable that this powerful God who, who created the universe calls us to work with him. But that is the truth that Scripture reveals. That's a truth that we have trouble believing sometimes. But you need to believe it because he is inviting you to work with him. The classroom, so on the beach, when he's standing there there in the beach covered in you know what, I mean the classroom there is this classroom that teaches me this, that I understand God wants my participation. God wants me to join in his story. It doesn't matter if you've had a lot of schooling or not. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're Asian, American, African, Australian, Antarctican. I mean, it doesn't matter. God wants you to be part of his story. And his story is a really great story. In fact, if you kind of get on your app or whatever and you kind of do a a concordance search of this word great, you're going to see this word popping up all throughout the book of Jonah. And by the way, the word great in the story never used as an adjective to describe Jonah himself, right? It starts out in the story. God says, Jonah, I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh. 
And then we join in verse 4, this word great. God sends a great wind over the sea. A couple of verses later, the great wind becomes a great storm. God puts a great fear over the sailors. And then in verse 17 of chapter 1, God sends a, yeah, a great fish to rescue Jonah. This is a story about God. This is a story about a great God doing great things through people like you and me. Again, the main character in the story is not Jonah. The main character is the Lord, and you and I are called into His amazing, His great story. And we will have moments like Jonah's moment on the beach. Will I join God's story? Or won't I join God's story? Will I become part of something bigger, something greater? Or will I continue to live in this lesser story? And we have to decide that, don't we? Honestly, the funny part of this story is Jonah is not exactly um, the kind of guy I would pick, right, to, to lead a revival in the city of Nineveh. But off he goes, and he's going to preach for 40 days in the city of Nineveh. His sermon in Hebrew is exactly four words, all right? It's a four-word sermon he preaches over and over and over again. And here's the message. Jonah 3, verse 4, 40 more days, Nineveh will be overturned. 40 more days, Nineveh will be overturned. And I don't know if you've thought about this, but seeing how, where Jonah's heart is at, seeing how much Jonah hates these people in Nineveh, have you ever thought about exactly how did Jonah preach? I mean, what was his delivery style? I kind of imagine Jonah on day one, like, 40 more days, city got destroyed. Maybe no one's even going to hear. And, and somebody's there on, on Main Street in Nineveh. Hey, man, did you say something? What did you say? 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Well, I don't speak Hebrew. Man, hey, does anybody speak Hebrew here? Um, you speak Akkadian? You don't? Okay. Let's see. Oh, this guy speaks Hebrew. Come on. And then that guy's like, oh, he's saying 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And I imagine, I'm like, I'm thinking as I read this story, and I'm thinking of how Jonah must have delivered this message and how incredibly uninspired he was to deliver this message. I'm thinking maybe he got a really good Akkadian translator. I mean, we've got like the Billy Graham of Nineveh here who's actually going to translate for Jonah. And Jonah's like, 40 more days, city will be overturned. This guy's like, 40 more days and the city will be overturned. <laughs> but something happens. And people start repenting. People start seeking God's mercy. In fact, in the end, everybody's repenting. Everybody's turning their lives to God. Um, and the king, the Assyrian king, issues a proclamation, issues a decree. Here it is in Jonah 3, verse 8. Let everyone, this is coming from the king, let everyone call urgently on God let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Wow, <laughs> that's a great response. I mean, that is incredible that revival like that would break out in the city of Nineveh. So what I learn on the street, what I learn on Main Street in Nineveh is that it's God's power, not mine, right? And so this is on your outline this morning. I see that God's word has power. I know in this story, and that's why God loves to, pe loves to use people like this, loves to partner with people, because it's obvious it's not the eloquence 
or the commitment or the inspiration of this particular guy named Jonah. It's obvious where the power is coming from. It's obvious what's making this transformation happen. It is the God who he speaks for. And so God is going to place you and me in some lives of some people. And you may think, well, I don't know all the Bible and I can't answer all these questions. What you need to be able to do, according to Jesus, is be a witness for Jesus. That means, as a witness, your responsibility is to be able to tell people what God has done for you. You may not be a Bible scholar. You may not have the Sermon on the Mount memorized, but you can say, look, here's what I know. My life was a mess. And then the Lord got a hold of me, and now it's not perfect, but look at what He's done. Look at what He's doing in my marriage. Look what He's doing in my family, my career. I mean, you tell your story. You be a witness. God's going to give you chances to do that. God's going to put you in some places like He put Nineveh where your story can change a life because His power is at work in your story. And so, Jonah's seven-second sermons end up producing 120,000-plus conversions. Man, that's good. What preacher wouldn't want to have that kind of return, you know? Seven-second sermons, 120,000 people are seeking God. So, anyway, you may be asking, epic fail. I mean, wow, there's mass revival. I mean, everybody, where's the epic fail in this story? Well, the epic fail is that for Jonah, this result is disastrous. For Jonah, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen. I mean, he has left the city after his 40 days of preaching. He has gone up on a nearby hillside. You remember the story. He's sitting there on the hillside, and he is waiting for what he hopes will be Sodom and Gomorrah-style complete destruction. That's what he's hoping for. A couple days go by. Nothing happens. You know, where is... The sulfur, where is, you know, where's the brimstone here? But something is happening, and, and Jonah slowly starts to figure it out. They've responded. And the destruction that I preached, not going to happen. Not going to happen. God is sparing these people. This is... Honestly, for me, this is the strange twist in the story is, is where Jonah may have been totally off in his theology about the omniscience of God, about, well, maybe I can escape God on this boat. Where he may have been off at that part, Jonah nails this part. Jonah is spot on, pitch perfect in his theology about the compassion and grace of God. In fact, that is where in chapter 4, Jonah begins to rant against God. Listen to this. This is incredible. This is after this amazingly successful revival. Jonah chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. So he, Jonah, complained to the Lord about it. What? The lack of destruction. The compassion of God. He complained about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and a compassionate God, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. So why don't you just kill me now, Lord? I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted, destruction of this city, isn't going to happen. This is the epic fail in this story. In response 
to this resentment, in response to this bitterness, in response to Jonah's complete lack of compassion for every man, woman, and child saved, God decides to graciously give Jonah an object lesson. All right, here's what we're going to do. Apparently, it's summertime in Iraq. It's very hot. Jonah's uncomfortable, so God sends this plant. And this plant grows up super fast. And all of a sudden, Jonah has this shade. And so he's able to watch things and see what's going on. And he's hanging out there in the shade. There's some relief. It's so good. He's so grateful for that shade. And then, remember what God does? (laughs) Yeah. God sends a worm. And this worm attacks the plant. And after a little while, this worm has managed to take the plant out. It withers up. It dies. And once again, Jonah is upset. The trap has been set. So God is going to come in and explain what just happened. This is the end of the book. Jonah chapter 4, verses 10 to 11. Then the Lord said, Jonah, you feel sorry about that plant. Though you did nothing to put it here, it came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention the animals. This is put in there for all you guys who love dogs and cats and stuff. God loves animals too, not to mention the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Not hard to see what God is doing here. Um, God hopes that Jonah will wake up and see how completely crazy it is that he is lamenting, he is mourning the death of this little plant. And he could care less about 120,000 people. Well, The Lord wants to convict Jonah of the ugly truth that Jonah's comfort and Jonah's convenience have become more important to him than the destinies of people he's been sent to preach to. So in the hillside classroom, number five on your outline, I am challenged by God's pardon. If God's grace doesn't make you uncomfortable... I suggest you don't understand the full implications of God's grace. We saw that a little bit last week with Ahab, didn't we? If God's grace doesn't unsettle you a bit, perhaps you need to think a little more about God's grace. Because God loves Ninevites. God loves addicts and alcoholics. God loves all kinds of convicts who are serving their time in jail. God loves Buddhists and atheists. God loves Christians. God loves hyper-religious people. God loves all of us Ninevites. Jonah found it objectionable. Jonah found it deeply troubling that God would extend mercy over a people who had attacked and leveled the nation of Israel. It made him more than uncomfortable that God's grace would cover the drowning folks of Nineveh, drowning in their sins. But God's love is great. And you know, in our finest moments, 
when we are nearest to God and we think about God's compassion and God's mercy and God's grace, we are so thrilled by it that we want to live the rest of our lives with passion for God and compassion for people. That becomes what we want to be about at our finest moments when we're touched with an understanding of God's grace. But if we're real honest, we see a little of ourselves in Jonah. I mean, if we humble ourselves and we think about a prophet who valued his own comfort and convenience over reaching lost people, we see a little bit of ourselves in there. And we see Jonah as a bit of a mirror. You know, this morning, there may be people who quite frankly, quite honestly, would be more disturbed if the preacher decided to preach in shorts. Be more apt to write a letter to the elders about that than be uncomfortable by the fact that their neighbor doesn't know Jesus that their neighbor is headed to hell. There may be people who would be, hypothetically, more uncomfortable if this church began to grow so much that that parking lot got so full, you had to end up parking over at North Dallas Bank and walking over here. There'd There'd be some people who would be more disturbed by that, upset by that, than the fact that there are thousands of families in Dallas living below the poverty line, don't have food to eat. But don't get mad at me, okay? Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. What, what do you need to fill in that blank there? What is it that makes you uncomfortable or gets you upset or gets, you under your, un, gets under your skin when it comes to church or religion or spirituality that frankly is more about your comfort and convenience than it is about the heart of God? What, what is that? What is that for you? Well, the question I think inevitably comes down to this. Um, I want to be about passion for God and compassion for people. This church wants to be about passion for God and compassion for people. What it comes down to is this. In the end, that vision is going to have to duke it out with my comfort and my convenience. In the end, that vision that we have that's so beautiful is going to have to fight it out with our preferences. It just is. Because as long as I'm trying to do that vision, Bob, as long as I'm trying to do passion for God and compassion for people and make sure that it fits in my box of what's comfortable to me, I'm like Daryl Smith trying to swim across a lake with handcuffs on. It's just not going to work well at all. But if I decide to be moved by God's compassion more than I'm moved by my preferences, my traditions, and my experiences, and my wish list of what makes me happy, well, you do the math on that. Now, the cool thing is, let me say that I have to say this. At Preston Crest, my goodness, I have seen some people really, really stretch themselves. 
I've seen some people put up with some things that maybe make them uncomfortable, but they've done it because they believe it may reach my grandkids. It may reach someone out there who's lost. It may reach someone from a non-church background. A lot of people have really done a lot of stretching, and I thank God for that. A lot of people are making that choice. So what it comes down to is, will I make the choice? Because this is the cool thing about this story, just kind of as, as we kind of wrap it up. You know, as we've gone through this epic fail series, it seems like each week we've had this really hard stop, this really definite ending, final chapter, you know, Jezebel, finality there, Ahab, final, final um, wrap-up of the story, they die, Nadab and Abihu, you know, we've got that end of the story there that we talked about a few weeks ago, or Rehoboam. We've got ends to these stories, but we don't have an end to this story. I mean, this book ends with a question. This book ends with God saying, Hey, Jonah, you mean to tell me you care more about the plant than you care about the Ninevites? I love it. We don't know what Jonah did with this. We don't know if finally it dawned on him, his smallness, his selfishness. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. I like that. I like that the story's open because your story is open. You're not dead yet. You're here this morning. God's not done with your story. It's open-ended. I mean, you're still standing on the beach with God inviting you to participate in some things. You're there. God is asking you into something great. And so all of us have the opportunity to say yes to God still. It's open. The story's not over yet. And then the last thing I love about this story, I love... The fact that this story, this crazy, weird story about Jonah and the giant fish and all this stuff, I love that this story points to Jesus. Of all of the Old Testament stories, Jesus could have grabbed and said, this is really a story about me. Jonah picks this one. In the book of Matthew chapter 12. Everybody's wanting Jesus to to be like a magician and perform more miracles so that they can be impressed. Hey, can you do that walk on the water thing again? Jesus says, look, here's the deal. Verses 39 to 40, Matthew 12, the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. He takes the story of Jonah and says, that story was a preview of coming attractions. That story story of Jonah in the belly of the whale was really, or the belly of the fish, was really about what's going to happen to me. For me, I'm going to be in the ground for three days and three nights. But I'm going to come out. Because God loves you so much that He is allowing His Son to die in your place. And Jesus takes this story and He says, I'm the ending of that story. My resurrection will sum up the story of God and become the ultimate invitation for people to join in with what God is doing. So what will you do with this story? I don't know. That's between you and God. Only you two can work out your ending to this story. Jonah chapter 5, there is no Jonah chapter 5. You are Jonah chapter 5. Work it out. 